All right, good morning. morning. So good to be back with you all. Um, And Pastor Meeks gave me the passage where everybody dies. (laughs) So not not only um, it's serendipitous from that standpoint, but it's also has has caused me to reflect um, as someone who has um, unfortunately witnessed quite a bit of of death of friends and loved ones in my life um, from early ages. Uh, So I bring that into today's sermon as well. Um, Let's just come before the Lord. Lord, um, Holy Spirit, pray that you would just give us wisdom. Speak to us, to our hearts through this text today. Um, Give me the words. Let the truth that come through be not mine, but yours. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. I do have uh, some slides, so maybe, are they up? Was this all of the, the, um, no, I mean the, the slides just for the sermon part. Okay, so just, I'll, I'll start, so I'm, I'm calling this, uh, message today, Death and Life After the Fall. Um, and, and so this first question always comes, comes to me, what is this passage all about? Kind of immediate overview. So I'll give a, a little bit of context. Remember, we're in Genesis 5. We're in the immediate aftermath of the fall. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, living happily, um, promised to live eternally. They took their lives into their own hands. Um, And they lost the intimate relationship they had with their creator and were subject to banishment from the Garden of Eden, as well as to death, ultimately. And over the past several weeks, we've talked in this this Floods and Gates series um, about the ups and downs in the wake of that, right, of of Adam's uh, offspring, Cain and Abel, uh, the offspring of Cain, um, and, and mostly downs, right? Ups and downs, but mostly downs. Um, but notice so far in, in, in Scripture, we're t- only told explicitly that two people have died in these, uh, in these chapters so far, right? Um, well, Cain killed Abel, obviously. Uh, and the second one is uh, Cain's descendant Lamech killed a man. We don't know who it was. Um, and in all that time, though, as far as we're told, nobody had died a natural death. And the first natural death from assumed old age, I suppose, is Adam's death, uh, which was mentioned in last week's passage. So, looking at this list of names, right, a a list of sometimes very complicated names, some are familiar, some are not so familiar, Um, let's just make a couple of initial observations. So one, this is in what in anthropology we call a patrilineal lineage. Notice what kind of people are in this list? It's the men, right? Um, Hebrew society was organized patrilineally, so people identified and, and kind of derived their identity through their father's bloodline. We don't see women's names in this history or this genealogy. Um, and women are basically invisible except as other sons and daughters, right? The other daughters. So there are daughters there, clearly, but they're not named. Um, and the fact that 
this to me, the, the fact that this genealogy comes right after the fall suggests that there might be something deeper there. I don't want to read too much into it. But notice that uh, throughout the Bible, these genealogies that center on men are actually interspersed with histories of faith that, tell, that give important roles to women. So, for example, before you say, oh, yeah, this you know, Hebrew society is totally you know, just male-dominated, um, okay, the second book of the Bible that's named after an individual person is what? Ruth, right? Um, and Sarah plays an important role in, women's, in Abraham's story. Um, we have women leaders in early biblical history, such as Deborah and Judges, right, and Esther. Um, and Jesus' physical bloodline, so, right, the, the, the bloodline is what matters. Well, Jesus' physical bloodline is actually through who? Mary. Okay? But here in this passage, we have the men. And I see here um, echoes of God's specific punishment on Adam and Eve due to their sin. Recall that in Genesis 3, 16, um, God told Eve that as a consequence of her sin, Adam would rule over her, that his headship or leadership would be a burden and something that was not, you know, not as it was supposed to be. Not to say that there wasn't a dynamic of leadership there, but whatever abuse of power or something like that, that the men, that the men would, could take control in that way. Um, and... So, so maybe, you know, this genealogy part of that is coming to fruition. And also God said to Adam, right, which we have echoes in this passage, cursed is the ground because of you. And that ties directly into the message of this passage as well, right? God tells Adam, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Um, all right, another aspect. What else do you notice about this story? People live a really long time, right? Okay, the longevity piece is, 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 is pretty crazy, right? We have people living 900, 800, 900 years. Okay, so to the modern thinker, this seems, okay, well, this is just mythology. So let's kind of unpack it a bit. Um, I think uh, I came up with kind of three possibilities or ways of thinking about this. First, my study Bible notes, so it's, I, I suppose because it's in my Bible, my study Bible, it's not heresy to say this. Um, it, was, it was convention in many ancient Near Eastern societies to attribute long life to respected people. So the footnote in my Bible gives an example of Assyrian kings, uh, or Sumerian kings from a kind of similar time period. And in their histories, it's written that they each lived 72,000 years. Like, okay, 72,000, that's a bit of an exaggeration, right? Like, if 72,000 is an exaggeration, why not? Is, is 900 also, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily, but if the numbers um, seem larger than life, it's part of convention at this time in history to attribute that sort of thing to people. Um, and even if these are somehow larger than life, it doesn't actually debunk the whole story anyways. Um, there's a second possibility, though, that I see. If these numbers are longer than actual individual lifespans, um, it might not be just an exaggeration because uh, we might not simply be talking about individuals in this sort of passage. So a second possibility, remember we're talking about a patrilineal society, also a clan-based society. So we know, right, the 12 tribes of Israel, what are their names? They're named after one guy each, right? Um, 
And when we see in scripture, we see like male leaders often moving from place to place, right, with herds and flocks, and then they will split off. For example, Abraham and Lot, right? They're with that with the household of Abraham. Eventually, Lot, they say, okay, well, our herds and families are getting too big. Lot, you go over here. Abraham, I, uh, you know, I'm going to take this uh, space over here. So it's possible that this genealogy is talking about successive groups of people under that sort of ancestor's family. Um, I'm not sure that works so well um, because the generations overlap quite a lot, but you know, keep it in mind as a possibility. And then the third possibility, which is you know, probably implausible to those, of, uh, those people outside the church, but for those of us inside, we have a God who can raise people from the dead. Amen? Amen. Why not people can live uh, 900 years? Um, think about this. I mean, the health and blessings of perfection that were given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden might have taken some time to wear off. From the time you were born, from the time I am born, we have genetic processes occurring in our body that are already setting us up to die. Right? Things are going on that we don't even know about that are going to be the preconditions of what dooms us in the end. Adam and Eve didn't have that. And so... Um, it seems likely that people in that uh, kind of context uh, could live much longer than we do. Um, but whatever the case of those sort of three possibilities, you know, clearly the point of the passage is that people lived and then they died. All right? Um, except Enoch, and we'll come to that. So let's start to go a little bit deeper. Remember the contrast that we heard uh, last week from the first part of chapter 5. When God made mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. But when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So, to be born in the image of Adam is to die. It's to be mortal, right? And you're all like, yeah, we were just singing and so joyful and now you got to come up here and talk to us about how we're all going to die. <laughs> right? Um, and it's kind of morbid, isn't it? It's considered morbid in our society. And anyways, our life expectancy is so much longer today than it was back in biblical times, right? Um, I, I, I started thinking about life expectancy because uh, this, this issue of sort of longevity we tend to measure life expectancy today in terms of life expectancy at birth, right? So think about this. Even 100 or 150 years ago, it was much like it had been for thousands of years. Um, children who were born were super susceptible to early childhood diseases and death. So a child, when it was not unusual even in the mid-1800s, even in the early 1900s, to lose multiple children during their childhood. Um, this meant that the average life expectancy at birth was pretty low around 40 years. So since around 1850, 1870, that life expectancy at birth in the U.S. has basically doubled from 40 years to 77.3 years now. Um, but if you made it through childhood, throughout a lot of history, unless there were wars or plagues or things like that going on, if you made it to your 20s or, or to 30, you could expect to live until you were 60, 65. Then you say, okay, you know, in that terms, and sort of extending human life for adults, like we made we made progress, right? But 
everybody's, like it was 10 years or 15 years. Like everybody still dies. Um, we're all going to face it sooner or later. Death is absolutely crucial for us to talk about as Christians and to think about. Um, in fact, I'm going to suggest that keeping death in mind and talking about it and planning for it is an absolutely important part of our joy and hope. Um, so today and what remains, I want to make three points. Um, first, death is worth mourning. Second, death is not the end. And third, embracing death is actually the path to, to joy. So let's not minimize it. Death is a terrible thing. I'm not standing up here saying, hey, we're going to die and it's okay. Right? Um, have you ever watched someone die? Yes. Probably quite a few of you have. Sometimes it comes suddenly. Other times gradually, sometimes it's painful, other times it's pick, quick and painless. Um, I remember when I was around 10, I found out that my, one of my best friend's dad had been diagnosed with ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease. So probably some of you in the room are familiar with that. It's not too uncommon. Um, sometimes people with ALS decline slowly, other times quickly, but in, in, in any case, your neuromuscular system gradually deteriorates and you're left unable to pick things up, unable to use your hands, gradually unable to walk, gradually unable to talk, um, to swallow, to breathe, and, uh, and then you die. And so my friend's childhood dream suddenly had to change, right? Because his dad at 37 years old was, di 38 years old was diagnosed with this. Um, my friend had always wanted to be a, a motocross professional. He and his dad always dirt biked together. Um, you know, within six months, he had to sell his dirt bikes and get rid of that dream. Um, and as kids, we were pretty innocent of some of the details of what was going on. But in, in the house, like we were there daily with immense suffering that just got worse over time. Um, within three years of his diagnosis, he died. And the suffering of, but, but the, the, when we talk about death too, we're not just talking about the suffering of that person. Because after the death, you have uh, a mother and right, three kids under 11 years old who are left without a father and left to grapple with that for the rest of their lives. Um, death is absolutely devastating. Now, we don't know the details of how all these Hebrew forefathers died. We don't know what the pain was. We don't know what their families did, right? We don't know very much at all. Um, but they left their families behind. And that raises to me just a, an initial question. How do we respond to death initially with people, regardless of whether they know Christ or not, at a surface level? Um, what I mean is, do we bypass it? Do we avoid talking about it, as most of our society does? Um, do we minimize it? When we lost another one of our close friends, uh, Julie and I lost one of our close friends a few years back, his wife used to be endlessly frustrated by people saying, you know, oh, he's in a better place now. And it's not that it isn't true, right? It's just that some truths are better said after you sit through the loss with somebody and, and just sit in the pain. Um, and, you know, here we also have the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do when, Na when Lazarus died? Oh, it's okay, you know. I'm actually going to go show you all, like, raise him from the dead. He wept. Jesus, of all people, knew what was coming, knew that he had power of death over death in his hand, and he wept. Why don't we? Um, 
Don't you feel like this is kind of what this passage and thinking about it makes me feel? Don't you feel and think about deaths, especially like the ugly ones, the suffering ones, the young ones? Like, don't you, doesn't just make you feel and just remind you that things shouldn't be that way? Like, don't you feel that in your heart? And Genesis 5 explains that feeling to us. Um, things weren't originally meant to be this way. Death is a consequence of the fall. Okay. But we also have a, another more encouraging reality. Death is not the end. In other words, death is not the ultimate reality. So here in the midst of the passage, we have a revealing departure from the general pattern. Which is who? Enoch. Enoch. Right? Okay, so when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Um, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. So in this passage, Enoch is a departure from this general pattern, right? So let's dig down into what this difference tells us. To me, this raises a lot of interesting questions. Like, we're given the most details about Enoch, but it's kind of like just whets your appetite for like, oh, wait, give, give me more details, right? Like, notice we don't have any descriptions of the other forefathers' relationship with God. Other than at the end of the last chapter, it says, you know, in the time of Enosh, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, but like, were they followers of God at all? Were they rebelling against God like Cain? Uh, we don't know. We're told that they died and Enoch didn't. Um, who taught Enoch the faith, by the way? Like, was it directly from God? Was it one of his ancestors? Keep in mind, if you go by, like, Adam, if you go by the actual numbers being attributed to the individuals, Adam would still have been alive for most of Enoch's life. So think about that. Like, doesn't that make you ask other questions? Like, did Adam talk about Eden and perfection and, like, direct relationship with God with his offspring? Um, did he, like, talk, talk to his descendants about that? And then were they frustrated with him? I'm like, right? Like, would he talk, would he talk to him about it? And then they're like, stop talking to us about that. Like, you're the one who, who messed it all up. I mean, can you, so you, can avoid, you can imagine him talking about it. You can imagine him, like, avoiding talking about it for his whole life because everybody's like, well, yeah, you really blew it. Um, were they frustrated with God? Did they, like, he could tell the story in such a way that everybody's like, oh, well, wow, that's not fair. God just did that because of an apple? Right? I mean, like, okay, so we don't know any of this, though. What we're told is simple. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more. Now, I think we can infer a little bit more by turning to the book of Hebrews, um, the 11th chapter. Now, um, okay, so I mentioned the patrilineal genealogy, which is what we're going through today, right? And you see these things throughout scriptures. List of men who had, uh, you know, male sons and heirs. Um, but in Hebrews, uh, I, in light of Hebrews 11, I want us to think about this genealogy of Genesis 5 as what's called a foil. Are you familiar with, with what I'm talking about from like movies, literature, a foil? Um, a foil is usually a character who contrasts with the main character in the story. They're, the foil is included in the story to, to accentuate the main characteristics or qualities of the main character, right? So you have like a really evil guy because you want to highlight that like how, how just how good the good person is, that kind of thing. Like you have a scary evil person to highlight how brave the good person is in the movie, that sort of thing, right? 
So throughout scripture, um, we have these genealogies of blood relationships, but they're sort of foils to the genealogy of faith that Hebrews 11 presents. Um, Hebrews 11 doesn't talk about Adam, but starts with Abel, right? And mentions that um, why Cain, why Abel's offering was better than Cain's because Abel uh, offered it in faith. Um, so in Hebrews 11, though, the second character in the spiritual genealogy is Enoch. So here's the explanation. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. How many of you have heard the, the second part of that passage often without the first part? Like without faith, it's impossible to please God? And then you're like, oh, wait, Enoch, who's, who's Enoch, right? Um, this, the Genesis passage doesn't necessarily draw this causal connection, right? Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was taken away. But Hebrews tells us that Enoch was given the reward of not experiencing death because of his faith. Um, and we only know two characters in the Bible who avoided death, Enoch and Elijah. All right. We have a lot more details of Elijah's life than we have of Enoch's, right? But you can kind of maybe imagine that, I mean, Elijah was amazing, right? He did all these incredible miracles. Um, he gave his whole life to counterculturally demonstrating and talking about God and God's, you know, uh, God's kingdom um, being against and, you know, not, not kind of aligning with the kingdoms of this world. So you can imagine something about Enoch's life from that too, I think. Now, that's not a promise that if you faithfully follow God, you're going to avoid death. I mean, don't get me wrong. I will love it if you do. Like, if you get taken to heaven in a chariot, I want to be there watching. And, and I will absolutely cheer you on. But don't get your hopes up. All right. Jesus was taken up to heaven too, remember? Quite an amazing way. But it wasn't because he avoided death. He... Um, Jesus lived a life of faith more perfect than Enoch's um, and than Elijah's, and he died a horrible death of suffering. So, but, and, but, it's, but we have to keep in mind, too, why did Jesus die? To end this cycle of Genesis 5, right? To bring us reconciliation with God so that even when we experience physical death, we may not experience the spiritual death of eternal separation from God. Um, and I, I just, so what I'm saying is, as, as followers of Christ, we have to acknowledge that, like, the way we follow Christ in this world does not dictate how you die or whether you die. Like, faithful Christians have died peacefully in their sleep at, at 102 years old. And they've been tortured to death. Right? Alike. It doesn't, ha it doesn't have a bearing on how they died, whether they were, whether they were faithful or not. Um, but what we do have in common is a community of faith that believes in the promise that death does not end everything and that this is not all there is. Now, there's a difficult subject that I, I want to bring up in this context that's worth nodding to. Wes mentioned it briefly actually last week. Um, but what does the belief that death is not the ultimate reality mean for how we think and talk about things like suicide? Because I think if we're a church that talks about death, we also have to talk about those difficult things. And I'm not going to go into unpack it a lot, but, you know, we have 
uh, knowledge and history of that in some of our families, um, in some of our friendships, even people that like we looked up to. You know, maybe you know people like that. Grew up in the church, had what looked like an amazing life. Um, you know, this this is a really hard topic, but it's it's one we can't shy away from. It's in the church. It's in our families. Um, and maybe you can sympathize then with a different reading of today's passage. I've certainly had this thought at times when I'm reading Genesis 5. Like, who would want to live 900 years? <laughs> you ever feel like that when you read a passage like that? It's not always like, oh, wow, 900 years, like long life and blessings. Like, I don't want to be that old, right? And like, life is hard. It's, it can be brutal. It can be unfair. I mean, 900 years is 900 years of, of possibility for damaged relationships, right? For people dredging things up. Can you imagine that? People are like, oh, you remember what you did to me 500 years ago? I mean, but, but, the, point is, but, but the point I'm making is like, there's, there's no real, right, we can, we can look at life and we can say, as far as our death goes, as far as disease goes, you know, we're, we'd be, it's a very dangerous ground to read rhyme or reason into the way that people die or their sickness or things like that. People in our society um, around us have sometimes explicitly and sometimes more implicitly adopted this belief in karma. Like, if you do good things, you know, good things are going to happen to you. What's the reality that you see around you? Man, Good people die young every single day. Like, like buses of, of kids coming back from church can't flip over and kill them. You know, these things happen. We can't dodge it. It doesn't matter if you go and give food to an elderly homeless lady under the overpass today. You might get hit by an 18-wheeler on the way home. Like, that is the reality that we live in. And when we face that chaos, that unfairness, and the, the additional pain of, you know, mental health struggles, financial turmoil, losing our own friends and loved ones and having to grapple with that. Can't we sympathize with somebody who feels that way too? Like, you know, you want to speed up the process maybe when you read about somebody who lives that long. Um, you know, sometimes it feels easier just to, to want to end life than to face another day of shame or grief. But that's where Christ steps in again. Because death is not the ultimate reality. Um, Jesus Christ points us to an alternative to this endless cycle of death. And here's the difference, right? Seth, Enosh, Kenan, good brother Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, they all lived and then they died. But in Christ, we're called to die in order that we might then live. So that's what I mean by um, embracing death being a path, path to joy. Scripture constantly talks about death, right? But it's not always like, oh, hey, you know, so-and-so live, 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 and then they died. It's not the end of, of things, um, especially in a New Testament context. We have a, a God who's constantly telling us that putting our earthly life to death is the starting point of joy. You know, if you're going to die, it's going to happen. And also, like, not to be more depressing, but in the long run, what you do between now and then almost definitely won't matter in the world's terms. Right? Sorry, that's the reality. Like, Enosh, Kenan, all these forefathers, they're the lucky ones, by the way, whose names are recorded. Every one of them had other sons and daughters. 
all, we don't know anything about them. They're just other people who've been dead for a few thousand years now, right? And like if the world continues for another 200 years, it's likely that that's where we're gonna end up too. I'm, and part of, I'm, I'm speaking to myself here too because as an academic, I live in this world of drive for immortality, right? As academics, everybody's like publishing articles, publishing great books, things like that. And, you know, well, at least there's kind of this, this implicit thing like, oh, well, at least like after I'm gone, the people still be reading me and discussing me like in another 30 or 40 years or something like that. It's like, who cares? <laughs> but, but look around us, not outside of academia, people all over us, all over our, our culture, all over our world, work until their dying days to make this kind of pretend immortality for themselves. And neglect their family and friends too, by the way, um, in order to carve out the space. And then they die. Um, and that, I think, is the critical recognition that we need to reach as followers of Christ. Because the answer to that hopelessness or that's that, that kind of you know, morbidity, like thinking this is so kind of down in the dumps. The answer to that is not to put the physical body to death as suicide, but rather to put to death all the misled desires and illusions that bring us to that point of despair. So right at the, at the critical point, I think, to go back to suicide, that gives somebody an ultimate control over the rest of their life. But Christianity offers and is based on an alternative Amen. to give Christ ultimate control over the rest of your life in the promise that this life will be abundant and full of suffering, right? There's a, that's a strong and there, abundant community blessings and persecution, suffering. Um, you know, Pastor Meeks opened the series Floods and Gates with a strong statement that we can sort of restate. Uh, God's not asking for your death, though it may come to that. He's asking for your life. Um, Jesus Christ doesn't say, you know, come to me and have a, a life full of material pleasures. He says, take up your cross, right? As Paul tells the Galatians, um, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we can take that and kind of go back and read uh, Genesis 5. The, there's a connection here, right? If we go back to the implication for Enoch, um, if Enoch lived by faith as Paul lived by faith, the implication is that most of Enoch's life were lived after he had already died to himself in order to walk faithfully with God, right? This is a big contrast with what we know about other people at this time, especially Cain's descendants, right? We learned about Cain's descendants the past few weeks. Like, they're known for building cities and making music and avenging themselves and this sort of thing. Um, and then they die. So Enoch, I think we, we, we can conclude that, uh, logically, that he had put those things and those definitions of himself apart from God um, aside and died to those uh, worldly desires. So Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice and invites us to partake in, within this, in his death in order to inherit eternal joy with him. And he's not, like, as I think about this, right, we, we kind of think of, of sometimes evangelization as like begging or pleading people like, hey, please just, you know, set foot inside the church, like that sort of thing. And that's great. But 
we ourselves also have to reach the point of saying with Peter, where else do we go? Right? Like, we're here on life, uh, on earth for such a short time, and then we die. Where else do we go? Where do you go? Where do you turn? Um, where, Peter says in John 6, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And the point here is that temporary pleasures can distract you from, from um, your earthly end. You can focus on things like this world focuses on, even kind of shift to random acts of kindness or happiness, you know, being happy every day and this sort of thing. But what happens when that happiness falls apart? Christ is our meaning and he is our hope. And also in that hope, we have community, right? We have each other. Um, we have our shared lives. We have our shared support for each other. Um, and this is the, the uniqueness of Christianity, that it, uh, of our faith. It reverses this process. We're promised repeatedly that if we put ourselves and our desires to death with Christ now, uh, we'll immediately share in his joy and his hope amidst our lives now, um, but also in eternal life. Now, I want to just... I'm finishing, as Pastor says. <laughs> Right, but, the, but, but like, I want, I think there's a very practical aspect of all this. Um, you know, when my friend's dad died when we were young, his whole family ended up stepping away from the faith. This man was a, a, a leader in our church. Um, but faced with the sudden, you know, the, the sudden realization of his, his loss, um, the, his family you know, they ask valid questions. Why would God allow such suffering and early death, um, especially to such a good man? And, you know, there's, there's not an answer. If you, if you think you have an answer, you don't. Stop and listen. Um, I don't have an answer, but I do have a contrast. So when Julie and I moved to the city of Atlanta in 2014, um, our first close friends were actually a, a married couple from the church. They were, the, I mean, this dude was just the most happy-go-lucky, carefree, and dedicated Christian you've ever met. He absolutely loved life. He described himself, in fact, as a Christian hedonist, right? Um, a Christian who was just obsessed with enjoying and giving himself to the enjoyment of life. And he and his wife had been married for a year and two months when my friend died in a tragic accident. 23 years old. Now, imagine, put yourself in her position. You know, 23 years old, in your early 20s, a week before her birthday, she's walking one day with your spouse, with her spouse, the next minute he's a bloody corpse. I mean, she mourned and questioned and cried out. She grieved, but she didn't run from God. And people are looking at her and asking, like, what is the difference there? And it was her faith, but it was also a really practical thing. So it turns out that from the time that they got married for a year and two or three months, he had been talking about death with his wife. How many of you talk about death in your first year of marriage? Right? How many of you talk about death before you get married? How many, how many of you think about it and talk about it? And not, not in just dwelling on a kind of morbid way, but like, but talk about it and say, hey, what is this going to look like? Like, what happens? Do we have a theology in place for if one of us is deathly sick, right? If one of us is suffering more than they should be, if one of us just suddenly 
is in a car wreck or something like that? Do you have a theology that can handle that? Do you talk about it? Do you talk to your kids about it? It's so countercultural, but it is so necessary, right? So this, like my friend's example of constantly reminding each other that death was coming and that it was not the end was such a key piece of dealing with it when it came. And so that, for me, is the takeaway and a, a practical thing that we can all work on. Lord knows I need to work on this too with my family. But embracing death before it comes is essential to maintaining our faith and the faith of our loved ones in the times of suffering. Because um, it's inevitably coming. So let's not avoid it. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would keep this on our minds, keep this on my mind, Lord, that we recognize death and that we embrace it. Both death to ourselves as a way into relationship with you, into community with your fellowship, but Lord, also knowing that we are going to die who knows when, who knows how, and that death is not the end. Lord, let us be people who live out joy and hope, not only in the midst of that, but also because of it, because we know this is coming and because we know that this is part of your plan and part of what we, part, part of um, just what we must go through in the wake of the fall. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to talk to each other about it, to talk to our kids about it. Um, and Lord, just to really, uh, really keep this in mind constantly as we go through life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
the miracle of Lazarus coming back to life. Ultimately, the miracle did not prevent the inevitable. It's appointed to each of us. One day we will die. But as Sean Connery said to Kevin Costner in The Untouchables, what are you prepared to do about it? Ignore it? Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. It's funny, I love my wife. She nudged me, uh, Daniel, when you said, who talks about those things? She nudged me. That's not a new, that's, that's, that's something that uh, we, we talk about. But uh, early on in our relationship, it was always, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. You don't know life until you talk about your death. Because what we will do is just crazily, blindly, stupidly. That's why, that's why the writer said, teach me to number my days. So I don't do stupid stuff. I know he said to apply heart to wisdom. But he's, don't do stupid stuff. Got this much time. This much time. So do you think that I'm going to be worried about <laughs> stupid stuff? Right, right, right. I know, I know. Pastor, you're different now. It's like, yeah, you should thank Sarah for that. You should thank her for that. She would have been 30 in three days. As Rachel said. It took Sarah's death for my grand for my grandchildren, her children to live. Because it catalyzed them into focusing them, the terminal nature of life. You got to know Christ. So what's it gonna take for you? What's it gonna take for you? I go to church, so what? So does the enemy. What's it going to take for you to move past religion and to drink from the same trough that Nate and Angela Doss drink from? As I said, I got a bromance. I got a bromance with Nate Doss. Because he said, Pastor, I've got so much work in my life. It's like, boy, you're, you're there because you understand it's not you, it's the Christ that's in you. No excuses. No excuses. No excuses. Just let me bury the dead. No, no. If, if, if that's your focus, let the dead bury the dead. What are you prepared to do about it? change me. My love for you all is just incredible. I love the you, you. 
Not the you that does stuff. I love you, Captain. I love you. I love you. Rachel Mode, I love you. Even when we make poor choices, your choice isn't pretty. See, see, I'm done, and, and I promise I'm done. I shared before, I'll share it again. I was driving with Rachel, with uh, Gail, and I was just thinking to myself, Holy Spirit responded, I said, I would give my life right now if my daughter could come back. Even if she made a boneheaded decision again and ended her life. Holy Spirit came back to me and said, that's what Christ did. Because he died for me without precondition. Because when I was yet in my sins, couldn't spell salvation. Couldn't spell Jesus. In my stupidness, he died for me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Keep telling you, you will get it one day. He loves Jeffrey Dahmer as much as he loves me. You don't. I don't. He does. Again, just so thankful for all that you have done, do, and have in store for us. You're incredibly awesome. You're incredibly good. You're infinitely good. Infinitely good. Father, you bear us up on eagle's wings even when life seems to just crush us in its vice. You bless us. You keep us. You, got, you keep us from ending our own life in the pits of despair. Father, you're so, so good. When we were yet sinners, You died for us. Where else would we go? What else could we do? What's the alternative? God, we so love you. So thank you for all that you continue to do for, through, and with us. Now, Father, as we go down from this place, watch over us. Protect us. Protect us from the evil one. Protect us from the world. Father, save us from ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for Julie. Thank you for their children. Serenity, river, ocean. Bless them. As we enter into this season of Thanksgiving and 
season of Advent. Bless the speakers that will come before us. Bless them. Bless them as only you can and you will. It's in the name of your Savior, your Son, my Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let every heart say, Greet somebody.